Welcome to My Two Cents with host J.R. Robinson and co-host Jessica Lonnie Rich. Are you on track for a secure retirement? If things go badly in the markets, will my nest egg still last? How do changing tax rules impact consumer savings and spending strategies? How do I know my financial advisor is competent and ethical? How do I organize my financial life? We'll answer important personal finance questions like these and so much more. And we'll do it in a way that makes a dry, arcane topic engaging and entertaining. And now, here are your hosts, JR and Jessica. Aloha and welcome to My Two Cents. I'm Jessica Lani Rich, broadcasting you from beautiful Honolulu, Hawaii. I'm here with my co-host, J.R. Robinson. J.R. is the owner and founder of Financial Planning Hawaii, and he's also the co-founder of financial software maker Nest Egg Guru. J.R., what do we have in store for today? Well, aloha, Jessica. Uh, mahalo as always for joining me. You are the heartbeat of this show. And uh, let's see, as, as you may recall, last week's show was all about helping consumers understand the difference between financial planners and other financial advisors. And we ended the show by providing consumers with sort of a roadmap for choosing a financial planner that outlined uh, first the due diligence process that people should go through before they meet with a financial planner. And, um, and then we gave them a list of 10 pretty direct questions to ask at that initial meeting with the planner. And while we, we actually did manage to get in the full list, I, I sort of felt like we were running out of time and we, we couldn't properly wrap that up. So what I thought today was maybe we could just start with, with that before we get into today's commentary. Um, and today's commentary is all about the financial independence retire early movement. So uh, if we could maybe start by finishing up last week. That sounds like a great idea, JR. And so let's start with the recap of the roadmap. I remember that you placed a really big emphasis on due diligence. Can you summarize that for our listeners, especially those who are new to our show? Yep, absolutely. Uh, so in terms of due diligence, uh, just the, to put into perspective the importance of due diligence, you're talking about meeting someone who's going to manage your life savings. So it's a really good idea to do a little homework before you hire that person. And that's what the due diligence is all about. Um, so the steps I gave are three pretty basic steps or, well, two really simple parts and one really very important one. Uh, the first step is obviously just to sit down and figure out, get some idea anyway of what you're looking for in a financial planner. What are your goals and, and you know, what, do you, what are your expectations from that relationship? And the reason for that is um, it gives you a little bit of a head start that you can then look up the, the financial planner's websites and start to see, okay, is this is the planner that I've found or I've been referred to, is that planner seem like it's a good fit for what I'm trying to achieve? So those, those two steps in the due diligence process are straightforward. And you really, you should know that financial planner pretty well before you get to the meeting. But the second step, or the, excuse me, the third step, and really is the, the most important aspect of the due diligence process is, and really, unfortunately, most people don't do this, but really everyone should, uh, is to take the, the financial planner's first and last name and enter it into FINRA broker check. You can just do a Google search for FINRA broker check, but FINRA is part of the regulatory association that governs financial planners and investment and other financial advisors. And when you look at that report, uh, the sort of information that you will get will include things like what their work history is, um, how many firms, in other words, how many firms they've been with, how long they've been in the industry, what exams they've passed and licenses that they have. And most importantly, it will also share any disclosure information that they may have. And when I'm talking about disclosure information, um, that would include things like client complaints. And oftentimes we'll see things like advisor misconduct forgery sometimes, misrepresentation, fraud, you'll see things like that. You might see even sometimes you'll see felony convictions um, and you might see terminations for cause, all sorts of bankruptcy filings, all sorts of that. Um, and obviously those would be a red flag. So I wouldn't say that when you see a disclosure event, it's necessarily a problem. Sometimes it's perfectly innocuous stuff. Um, there was you know, nothing really wrong, but um, but it's so important to know that. I mean, how many, how many times do people, it's, Actually, there's a long list of financial planners who have disclosure events on their histories and people in a, and some of them are really, really bad. And the consumers have no idea because they didn't take the simple task of looking it up on broker check. So um, that's the due diligence process. 
JR, that is really good advice. And then when you just mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, if they had felony convictions uh, or bankruptcy, I don't think any of us wants to go with a financial planner that has had either one of those. So with that, can you also go through some of the interview questions that we can ask? Yes. And um, uh, I, I appreciate your uh, efforts to keeping me focused on that. Um, as uh, So I'll start question number one on the list. And try to get through these relatively quickly, but um, ask the planner to explain what their approach to financial planning is just to see if it matches their interest. Again, you should probably check them out on the website already, but just see what they say. And you can kind of get a feel for if it's a right personality fit or for you know just a general fit from that. The second question I would ask, um, again, pretty straightforward, but ask the planner what they perceive their strengths are in terms of knowledge base and in terms of how they run their practice. And um, and also ask them what what sort of clients are generally a good fit, but also which ones might not be. So not everyone does everything. I always give the example. Um, I do comprehensive holistic financial planning. But if somebody's coming to me for budgeting and debt management advice, it's not really I don't really do that as much. So that person might not be a good fit. Um, number three, and this actually I think is, is a very big one. Ask the planner to describe his or her qualifications, including academic background. So make sure that the planner explains to you whether he or she holds a brokerage license and or an insurance license and confirm that he or she is actually registered as an investment advisor representative with the SEC. And as you may recall from that, uh, uh, our call last week, that is actually a requirement for anyone to call themselves a financial planner. You have to be registered with the SEC as an investment advisor representative to call yourself a financial planner um, if your business has anything to do with investment guidance. So. Um, there's that. So, JR, should you ask if the planner is a CFP? I mean, in some of the personal finance articles that I've read about choosing a financial planner, many suggest working only with a certified financial planner. Is that good advice? Uh, great question. And the short answer is no, uh, it is not good advice. But but let me qualify that. Uh, okay. To be, to be clear, there's nothing... There's nothing really inherently wrong with a financial planner who holds the CFP designation. In fact, um, it, I've got lots of friends who are CFPs, and it, it shows that the planner has actually taken time to invest in expanding his or her own knowledge base. And I'd say it's particularly important or particularly useful if that planner has no other prior related academic experience. You, you don't need to have any academic experience to be a CFP. Uh, you know, academic experience in mean in finance or econ and that sort of thing. Um, now, I, I would tell you that the CFP mark is not has no undergraduate accreditation at all. Um, it definitely does not outshine or match the rigor of an undergraduate degree in finance or econ or accounting. Uh, I've been through both and I, I can sort of attest to that. Uh, it, it also definitely does not, and this is very important, it does not signal to consumers a higher standard of ethical conduct um, than say non-CFP financial planners have. In fact, um, and this is a sort of a research area that I've been focusing on lately. Uh, but there's mounting research evidence to suggest that CFPs are actually more likely to have disclosure events on their records than non-CFP financial planners. So um, that's my unambiguous two cents on that topic. Uh, uh, but um, um, or, oh, yeah, getting back to the list, um, number four, and this is uh, also a big one, ask the planner what he or she has done in his or her career to differentiate themselves. Uh, to uh, and then relative that's you know, differentiate relative to other industry peers. Uh, have they published any papers or articles? Do they have advanced degrees? And what you're really asking when you're asking this question is, do you as a financial advisor have critical thinking skills? I mean, have you ever had an original thought that might make you uh, really good at what you do? So that's what we're getting at there. Sure. Um, yeah, it makes sense, right? <laughs> Um, yeah. it's, a question you, it's a question you don't see in a lot of the, the, the magazine articles of you know, top five things you should ask a planner. So um, another one, number five on the list, do you sell insurance products or brokerage securities? And if you do, will you disclose in advance to me the amount of commissions that you'll receive from these sales? And this question, I'll tell you, I've, I've seen this come up a lot. It may turn off some planners. And if it does that, it should probably turn you off from them too. It's Consumers have a right to know how much the other person's getting paid. It's relevant to their decision-making process and to yours. Um, so Absolutely. If they balk, if they, yeah, if they balk at that, yeah, I, to me, I'd be thinking not a great fit. Um, along the same lines, number six on the list, how do you get paid? 
Uh, are you paid commissions, asset-based fees, hourly, retainer, or some combination thereof? And there's nothing judgmental or editorial in those comments, but they really do need to disclose to you how they get paid and how much, you know, how much per in, in their dealings with you. You don't have to know how much they make for a living, but you know, how much they make um, in the relationship with you. Great uh, question. Yeah. So uh, these are things that you just don't find in, often in those articles, right? Yeah. Um, so um, number seven on the list, um, how do you demonstrate tangible value to your clients on an ongoing basis? And here, what I'm talking about, and this was from our show last week too, it, are they providing a single financial planning document to you and calling that the financial plan? Or what I think everyone should do is actually give you a platform, an ongoing platform, typically an online platform that allows you to monitor and maintain and organize your stuff over time rather than just a single at a single point in time. So um, that's a key question. Number eight, um, will you take the time to educate and engage me in the financial planning process? And these days, I think people are sophisticated enough, have enough, there's enough information available online that people are becoming very sophisticated. And that's part of the value of working with the planners. That their, their job is to help you become more educated, more engaged. So people want that. And, that, and I think most people do. Assuming you do, that's a question to ask. Um, number nine, if I work with you, where will my accounts be held? And usually you want that to be some Ooh. big custodial firm, right? Um, yeah. That might be, I mean, if you're working with a big brokerage firm, that might be Merrill Lynch um, or Wells Fargo or UBS. It might be, if you're working with an independent planner, probably Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade, might be E-Trade, um, but big financial institutions like that. So, um, and at the, along the same lines, uh, will you ask, will you have discretionary trading authority over my account or will you seek my approval for all investment decisions? And honestly, there's, again, no editorial commentary intended here. If the financial advisors, or excuse me, the financial planner's primary business is portfolio management, then they will probably ask for discretionary trading authority and not have to call you every time they make a change. Um, in my practice, which is financial planning centric and investment is it's not marginalized, but it's less of the, the total picture. Um, we um, we want to, the clients to participate in the decision, decision making process. So I think a lot of the independent financial planners probably operate the same way. Um, and just as a point, uh, just a full disclosure, we, we're not on this show to recruit clients. I'm talking a lot about me in this, right. but uh, we, we're not accepting new clients. This show is purely for consumers. I don't want to give people the wrong idea here. Um, and then the last thing on my list, number 10, may I have a copy of your SEC form 2A and 2B? And these are plain English disclosure documents. They're easy to read. They tell you a lot about the advisor's background um, and they're required to be delivered to all clients in advance of establishing a relationship. So if the planner looks confused or does not have that document relatively or excuse me, easily available, um, I would suggest that it's probably time to look elsewhere too. It's required. JR, I just want to go back real briefly to question number seven. You mentioned a planner providing a planning platform. I would think over the years, sometimes a plan could change. Uh, how do you respond to that? Yeah, that's that's really, I think the financial planning today is is exactly that. Most people are, are providing their clients with a, a comprehensive platform and an online platform. And there's there a few of them available, but where you can consolidate all your assets at all institutions, see them updated daily for anything where you have an account value or there's mortgage credit cards or whatever, um, your investment accounts, 401k, see it all in one place. And a place where you can also store your important documents, estate planning documents, beneficiary forms, life insurance policies, um, tax returns, employee benefits handbooks. That is a, that's a platform. And, and as, change, as life changes over time, it's easy to update and maintain your financial plan just by deleting one thing and adding another. That's a big element of financial planning today. It's not giving you a planning document and say, here, here's your financial plan that you're never yeah. going to read after you leave my office. I am so glad that you explained all that. Now, your 10 question checklist is so right on the mark. You're so right. It is much more targeted and insightful than the guidance I've read in personal finance magazines. I have just one more question to be added to the list. Is it okay to ask the advisor for references from other clients? It's okay to ask, but not for the reason you're probably thinking. So under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940 and, and the subsequent rules regulating financial planners, um, it is actually illegal for a financial planner to market themselves using client testimonials. 
So you can't ask clients to give you that testimonial. And at the Why same time, yeah, if you actually think about it, it's also a violation of client confidentiality. So which is huge in the financial services industry. Now, a good financial planner should know this and explain to you why he can't give a testimony. It's not being, he's not trying to dodge you. You just not, you can't. And if the financial advisor conversely offers up a bunch of client names, it's again, it's a red flag. You have to be wary, be wary of using this planner. Well, thanks so much for sharing that with our listeners. And we're going to hear more after a word from our sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Nest Egg Guru makes affordable software for financial advisor websites to help advisors better educate and engage with their clients. Consumers today no longer wish to receive book-length so-called financial plans that they'll never read after leaving their advisor's office. Instead, they want to be educated and to participate in the planning process. The three Nest Egg Guru planning apps help address your greatest financial fear. If things go badly in the markets, will I still be okay? Tell your financial advisor to step up his or her game at nesteggguru.com. Tune in every week for My Two Cents with host J.R. Robinson and co-host Jessica Lonnie Rich. J.R. is the founder of Financial Planning Hawaii and a co-founder of software maker Nest Egg Guru. You'll gain professional insight into some of the hottest topics in financial planning today. And along the way, you'll hear some of the great stories that make learning about personal finance entertaining. Listen for My Two Cents every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. You are listening to My Two Cents. We'd love to hear from you on the program today. Call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. If you'd rather send an email, the email address is info at fphawaii.com. Now, back to My Two Cents. Here again are your hosts, J.R. Robinson and Jessica Lani Rich. J.R., what are some of the other red flags for consumers that might suggest that maybe I should avoid a particular financial planner? I've got, a, there's a handful of them um, that kind of easily come to mind. Uh, one is double dipping, and that is uh, if the financial planner produces and charges for, a, say, a flat fee for producing a financial plan, and then um, uses the information in that plan to steer you to particular products that you will then pay for again. We call that double dipping. Um, sure. I think that's a big red flag. Uh, I'm not even a big fan of just providing, paying for a flat fee for financial plan and then and then requiring an ongoing fee thereafter. It's it, it just just offer the ongoing fee if it's going to be an ongoing relationship, but um, but that's a, that's separate. So uh, also, like I said, balk at any financial planner who disclose who uh, excuse me, walk away from a financial planner who balks at disclosing opaque commissions or balks at at the idea of having to disclose how they're compensated. It's common sense. Um, another big one: uh, if the financial planner boasts that they've got uh, a number of awards and that those awards are from sales production and revenue generation, like million mm-hmm. dollar round table or Barron's top producer index. Yeah. It's great that they're good at selling and making a living. I'm not sure that they're out, not aware of any actual research that suggests that sales ability is correlated to I positively correlated anyway, to ethics or to, um, or to just being good at what you do at financial planning. So I would, uh, that, that makes me nervous. Um, uh, let's see. On that same score, I, uh, <laughs> The not so humble brag. I have a client who had a, a financial planner was pitching a 401k plan to him, and uh, he was boasting about how he had a private jet and how he, you know, how he was one of the top people at his entire firm. And my client would just got a bad feel for him. Asked me to check him out, so I did what he should do, which is go on broker check. The fellow had filed for bankruptcy 12 months earlier and had four major disclosure events, including three awards to clients for complaints to over hundred thousand dollars. Oh, so, no, that's it's, horrible. It's, it's again, it's why you need to go and look at broker check before you interview anybody. Um, so that was one. 
um, the last couple, just to wrap up this part of this uh, show, uh, financial planner, if the financial planner suggests that he you know, offer superior investment performance or superior market timing, again, not a good sign. Uh, we all fish in the same pond. The markets are very efficient. Nobody really can successfully time the entries in and out. If, if, if you actually think that that's true, then find an advisor who will say that. I, I wouldn't. I, I don't do that. I lost a client, a prospective client once, because the advisor at another firm said that he could get 12% annual returns. Um, I, I would never promise that. Sometimes things go down, so I would never do that. Bernie Madoff was kind of crafty about it. He actually didn't promise 12% returns. He said, I will get you a conservative eight every year, 8% every year. So again, performance, it's just, I wouldn't. You don't touch it. The market gives what the market gives. And the idea is to make your portfolio as efficient as possible. Um, lastly, uh, or actually, two, there's two more. Actually, um, If a financial planner suggests that the pricing model they're using has no conflicts of interest, uh, I would also challenge that. Um, it's, there are lots of people who have uh, who sermonize over one model being better than the other, whether it's hourly or flat fee or asset based. Every financial planning compensation model has a conflict of interest, and those conflicts should be disclosed to the client in advance. Um, That's good to know. Thank yep. you. I have one other one. This is a funny one, actually. Sort of, it's okay. half. I say it half joking. Um, okay. So the other thing you should be aware of, wary of, is financial planners who host personal finance shows on radio. <laughs> You're kidding, right? <laughs> like I said, it's half joking. I actually was okay. hesitant to actually host this show because I really didn't want to be lumped in with a lot of people, a lot of other people in this area. If you look at the, the there are a lot of, I don't see a lot of radio shows, but even the ones I look at, they're usually it's people selling something or selling, promoting a, their books or their system or whatever. But there's a long list of people who've done some really bad stuff. So before there was Bernie Madoff, there was this guy named Bradford Blight in Boston. He was a CFP and he opened the, he, he was he was convicted of a Ponzi scheme and went to jail for more than a decade, but oh. he was like $30 million he stole from charities, local Masonic associations and things like that, and hospitals. It was just despicable. But he, um, he said he used the CFP mark to gain credibility and gain trust. And he used his charisma and his personality that he was known and just his fame as a radio producer to suck people in to steal their money. So um, there was just, and what made me think of this, so there was just in the news um, yesterday, there's a woman named Brooklyn Willie, who, was, uh, who hosts a radio. I think she maybe even still hosts it. She's from Texas. And um, she was just banned from the financial planning industry for a year and had to repay $2.75 million in commissions that she received from selling unregistered securities or something like that. So she's a big time radio person. So we're not that, but I wouldn't say just because somebody is famous or well-known that you should automatically trust them or think that they're competent. No, one of the things that I really appreciate about you, JR, is the main purpose of you hosting this radio show is that you want to provide consumer education and help the, our listeners, which is really wonderful. I had no idea about what you were talking about. It's really fascinating and it's actually a little unsettling, but thanks for sharing that with our listeners. Um, I also, it's time now to dive into our topic of discussion for the day, which is the financial independence retire early movement. Now, this concept is more popularly referenced to uh, with the acronym of FIRE, F-I-R-E. Share with us about that, JR. Sure. Uh, well, the let's see. For the uninitiated on this subject, the FIRE movement emphasizes extreme savings behavior and disciplined investing, investing behavior with the the goal of achieving sufficient wealth to generate enough passive income to allow the consumer to retire far, far earlier than what we would consider normal retirement age. And sometimes by earlier, the goal is to achieve to achieve retirement in one's 30s or 40s even. So, um, and when I say extreme savings, if the typical savings rate that's often thrown about to help people save enough to retire at normal retirement age is in like the 10 to 15% income range, Fire movement disciples emphasize saving rates as high as 50 to 75% of their income per year. So it's extreme oh savings. God. It's not easy, but, uh, but it required there, there, you know, it's, it, it's, it's discipline. And, and that's the, that's the idea. There are numerous variations on the concept, but that's really is the, that those are really the common underlying principles of it or the foundation of the fire movement. Now um, in terms of my general outline for this discussion, I'm going to provide my two cents 
uh, about the positive attributes of the fire concept. And there are many actually. In fact, I'm, I very definitely appreciate the refreshing new perspective uh, that the fire movement bloggers have brought to the financial planning world over the past decade. But at the same time, there are also some major pitfalls and what I believe I think are flawed math in the strategy that really need to be aired out. Um, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you, if you think about it, the, you know, the, the allure of accumulating wealth in a short period of time to enable somebody to retire decades before normal retirement age is obviously a very powerful attraction to people, right? Sure, and, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't yeah. want that, right? right. Um, now, it, at the same time, the decision to terminate one's normal career, you know, they've probably invested in and worked their way up a little bit. Um, the, the decision to terminate can also have potential long-term consequences. Yes. And to, you know, I'll give you examples. Um, I gotta be careful about how I explain this, but over my career, I've encountered a number of consumers who were sucked into that same allure of early retirement and the, and, and the promise of wealth through things like multi-level marketing schemes. I, I've mm-hmm. seen it happen to people who, um, joined the Am- one of the Amway affiliates or sure. Herbalife, and they later regretted leaving their jobs. So, um, and to be clear, I, this is why I've got to be careful. Fire has absolutely nothing to do with multi-level marketing. There's, there's nothing shady or deceptive about it whatsoever. Um, I just make that analogy to emphasize that the potential financial cost of leaving one's jobs and leaving the job market can be high. Um, I don't really mean to give away the ending of the show, mm-hmm. but my general opinion is that Fire is, well, there are elements of the strategy that I think should be incorporated into the saving strategies of just about every working American. Uh, But I also think that consumers need to be extremely circumspect about that decision to abandon a career in their 30s or 40s, especially if it would be difficult to return to that career later uh, if the retirement early gig doesn't actually work out. So that's that's the, the outline for the show. That makes sense. Now, if you're just tuning in, you're hearing the acronym FIRE, and it stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. Uh, so that's what we're talking about, FIRE here. And JR, what else is not to like about the FIRE movement? Yeah, let's all, or, or in other words, what do I like about it, right? Yeah, what um, do you like? I mean, there's <laughs> a lot of things to like because who doesn't want to retire early? Exactly. You know? Well, I'll tell you the, the things that about it that I think are great. So okay. um, the emphasis on saving is is is, is obvious. I mean, most Absolutely. people are in America are far, far behind in saving for retirement. You see statistics like the average person who is in their 50s or 60s has maybe $100,000 saved for retirement. $100,000 is a lot of money, don't get me wrong, but it's not enough to live off of for the next 30 years. Yeah, but JR, you also mentioned 50% of your savings, some of them are asking for. Isn't that a lot? 50% of your income is not. It is. And they a have lot. a lot. And not, not every, if you're making, if your income is you know, $20,000 or $30,000 a year, it might not be possible. But the whole, I think, you know, and you'll see, there are plenty of people who can save a lot more than they do. And I think that's True. what they're talking about. So, okay, um, got it. So that's one. Another thing that I like about it, just a very positive vibe. Uh, is that it's just, it's in many cases it's a shift away from materialism to mm. experiential living. In other words, don't spend money on stuff, but spend it on enjoying life and creating life. And the whole idea of, of retiring early is that you, you you get to enjoy, spend time with your family and travel and do those things. And I'll, I'll tell you, when I was first reading about it, and even now, I, I have to say there's a twinge of jealousy in me when I look at these people who are retiring in their 30s and 40s. Now, I'm 55 years old. I, I've been working probably 50 or 60 hours a week since I was 23. And when you look back, I've got four kids and did I spend too much time at the office? You bet I did. So that, that whole concept of getting a better work-life balance, I'm all for it. I think it's great. Um, I also think that the, the focus of the FIRE movement on developing passive income streams um, as a source of retirement or in, income in retirement is, is great. I mean, most people don't, aren't going to have pensions anymore and it's it's got to be more than just your 401k. So if you've got other assets to rely on in retirement, things like real estate income and dividend are good examples. Um, my favorite in- passive income stream is the side hustle, which, you know, it's, um, I'm a big, I have my own company. So self-employment and entrepreneurship uh, can be a great source of income. And really, as it fortunately has been for me, and it is if you're in this movement too, it's a way to pursue your passion. You don't have to worry about making a lot of money, but if you can make a little doing something that you love, great. So all of those things are, are, are positive attributes. Um, the other thing I like about it is the emphasis on tax efficiency. So taxes are often the single biggest expense 
in people's lives. You got property tax, income tax, um, yes. tax on dividends, sales tax. You know, there's plenty of tax to go around. And the whole idea of this of the movement is minimize that big, big expense. So that's, that's sound financial planning advice all the time. Um, so those are the, those are the, those are the things that I like. Those are the best things. Well, there is definitely a lot to like about the financial independence, retire early, or fire movement. But what's not to like? So, I, I think there are the things not to like probably fall into two categories: okay. unforeseen pitfalls, and as I mentioned a little earlier, bad math. Um, and my sense is that people who are committed to frugality and having just enough assets to cover their current expected expected expenses sometimes or at least i worry about this that they fail to account for the possibility of certain exogenous shocks and to put it differently sometimes life kind of comes at you funny in ways that you don't expect and so Absolutely. i'll give you yeah I, I, so i'll give you a couple of examples of uh, that are common but there's really an infinite number of things that could potentially throw a wrench in these plans um, one is failing to account for the cost of raising children. I don't mean the children yes. are a bad thing. I've got four of them and I wouldn't give any of them back most days. Um, That's good to hear, JR. <laughs> <laughs> okay. but, but they're expensive to raise. I'm not just talking about the expense of tuition uh, for college or private school or whatever, but they're just expensive to have. Feed, clothe, all that kids' activities, all that. They don't come cheap. Um, another one is the, the cost of health care, health insurance, really. Um, so if your company is paying for your health insurance now and you're giving that up when you, if you leave that job, think carefully about that. You know, we live in Honolulu. If I had to do the, to pay for, well, I do have to pay for health insurance here for my family. The total cost of that might be twenty-five dollars or $35,000 a year. So think carefully when you give up that benefit if, if you're leaving the job market. Absolutely. Um, another one, oh, this is also a big one too, uh, to be that's, uh, you know, sort of a, a unexpected pitfall. Passive income is a lot harder to generate than I think some of the, the bloggers may have led people to believe. Um, and unlike them, your side hustle probably isn't going to be a, a blog that generates a half a million dollars a year in ad banner ad revenue and sponsorships. So um, the, the impact of things like falling interest rates on passive income is a great illustration of this point. Um, if you look at back over like fire blogger content from 10 years or so ago, you'll find that in interest income from bonds and CDs is almost penciled in as a reliable perpetual source of income. But today, interest rates on CDs and municipal bonds and treasuries are paying almost nothing. I mean, the 30-year treasury bond pays less than 2% interest, one and three quarters percent. So it's not really a, a big contributor to portfolio returns. Um, similarly, I think people are finding the same thing when it comes to, to being a to rental properties, aside from being the, the hassle of potentially being a landlord, there's this sort of this perception that you can get a net ROI in the five to 7% range on real estate pretty easily. These days, I think I'm hearing this from a lot of clients who invest in real estate, that ROI is about as rare as spotting a unicorn. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not just the easy source that people think it is. So You're absolutely right, JR. And we have covered a lot of ground on the fire movement, which is the financial independence, retire early movement. And now I understand the concept more clearly. We're going to dive even deeper after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Nest Egg Guru makes affordable software for financial advisor websites to help advisors better educate and engage with their clients. Consumers today no longer wish to receive book-length so-called financial plans that they'll never read after leaving their advisor's office. Instead, they want to be educated and to participate in the planning process. The three Nest Egg Guru planning apps help address your greatest financial fear. If things go badly in the markets, will I still be okay? Tell your financial advisor to step up his or her game at nesteggguru.com. Tune in every week for My Two Cents with host J.R. Robinson and co-host Jessica Lonnie Rich. J.R. is the founder of Financial Planning Hawaii and a co-founder of software maker Nest Egg Guru. 
You'll gain professional insight into some of the hottest topics in financial planning today. And along the way, you'll hear some of the great stories that make learning about personal finance entertaining. Listen for My Two Cents every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to My Two Cents. We'd love to hear from you on the program today. Call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send an email, the email address is info at fphawaii.com. Now, back to my two cents. Here again are your hosts, J.R. Robinson and Jessica Lonnie Rich. I'm Jessica Lonnie Rich, and we're here with co host J.R. Robinson, and we're talking about the financial independence retire early movement. J.R., there's a lot more to dive into. Share with us what's going on. So, yeah, so I, I'm just saying some of the unexpected exogenous shocks that people could face um, after they retired early, the things that you yes. need to be aware of before you make that big decision. The other part, the other pitfall, it's not a pitfall, but the other problem I have with the math on the, it's basically that there's bad math in that, in, in some of the fire movement strategy. And um, here's what I mean by bad math. So one is the failure to account for the loss of social security benefits. If you quit your job early, you're not only terminating your job income as an income source, but you may also be short, um, shortchanging yourself in terms of social security as a future earning source. Um, that is, unless you've got a side hustle that provides enough earned income to help increase or, or keep your social security benefits high. So um, I don't know how, um, how much people know about how social security is calculated, but it's based on the inflation adjusted value of 35 years of earnings history, your highest 35 years. And if there's a bunch of pukas, uh, there's a bunch of holes in one social security <laughs> record. I'm glad you explained that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost local, not really, but almost. I know. <laughs> um, but if you've, got, if you've got some holes in your earnings history, um, that can lower the amount of social security benefits that you may receive, uh, in which if you stop working at 30 or 40, you're likely to have. So um, now I've had this debate with some people in the fire movement before, and um, they've uh, pointed out true accurately enough that social security is intended to help the lowest income people the most. So if your income is low, you get a significantly larger percent of, of your income replaced by social security than if your income is high. Well, that's true in percentage terms, but in dollar terms, it can be actually a big deal. So in 2020, for example, the maximum social security benefits that one can get um, are a little over $36,000 a year. But if you had a limited earnings history or a lot of holes in your earnings record, it might you might be receiving as little as $15,000 or $20,000 a year from Social Security. So it's overlooked, but it's an often important source of guaranteed inflation-adjusted income in retirement, and people should think about that carefully. Um, the second problem, math problem, and this is sort of the heart of, heart of this topic, uh, is the so-called 4% rule that's often used for determining lifetime on income sustainability under the FIRE uh, model. So uh, this is a research topic that I've actually written a lot about, retirement income sustainability. And the origin of the 4% rule, that is the, um, actually uh, the origin came from a, a 1994 paper that was published in the Journal of Financial Planning. I, I read it actually shortly after it came out. It was written by a California financial planner named Bill Bengen. And Mr. Bengen's objective was to determine the maximum inflation-adjusted withdrawal rate that could be taken from a portfolio that would not be depleted over a 30-year retirement time horizon, regardless of how badly stock market, market conditions were. And his conclusion was that the maximum safe withdrawal rate, or safe max, was around 4%, and that the optimal portfolio allocation that produced that level of sustainability was about 60% stocks and 40% bonds. And the most important contribution of his paper was actually to raise financial planner awareness of what's called sequence of returns risk. That is the risk um, consumers face if, of running out of money early, uh, that is before they run out of time, short, if, if you get a, uh, a, a number of sharply negative years shortly after retirement. Um, 
So that was a big contribution to the paper, but the, what's really remembered for is this 4% rule. And it seems to have captured the fascination of the fire folks. And here's the problem with that. Um, first, Bengen's paper was considering the coming wave of baby boomers who were planning to retire at around age 65. So it was based on a 30-year retirement time horizon, not a 50-year, 60-year time horizon that someone would have if they were retiring in the 30s or 40s. Um, second, when the paper was written in 1994, interest rates, as you may recall, uh, were a lot higher than they are today. And that 60-40 model worked great when the bond portion was throwing off 6 or 7% income each year to contribute to portfolio returns. Now, portfolio depletion will come much more quickly when that, his, that income stream has dried to a trickle, where it, which is where it is today. Bonds are contributing almost nothing. So um, again, it's, you can't really look at that as, as, as with the same security as you once did. Third, um, Mr. Bengen chose a $1 million initial portfolio value for his paper just because it was a nice round number for illustrating things. Um, but many folks in the FIRE movement have used this, I'm not sure why, but they've used it as a target savings goal. And unfortunately, this arbitrary $1 million number that he chose in 1994 buys a lot less today than it did a quarter century ago. And of I can, Ill- <laughs> well, I, I, I'll give you this, the, the perfect example of that using my own my own painful example. So when I attended Williams College in 1984, um, the annual tuition rate, which seemed exorbitant at the time, was $13,000 a year. I graduated in 1988. It had skyrocketed to $17,000 a year. Any idea what oh that, the number is today? Any idea what the price of the No, no. Is? what is it? It just passed $80,000 a year. Unbelievable. So, now, and I'm sure wow. there a lot of people in the fire in the fire movement would would scoff at the idea of paying that much for a college education when you can get a, a you know a great education for much less. But I assure you, if you if you apply that similar concept to things like the cost of health insurance, you'll see the same pattern. Um, so a million dollars a day doesn't buy anything like a million dollars. It's not that people can't live on a million, but just it's just an arbitrary number. Make sure that you account for the future cost of living when you're planning to retire today. Absolutely. And we're talking about the FIRE movement, the Financial Independence Retire Early Movement. GR, can you give us a couple of case studies? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I think it's important to make it sort of tangible. So um, I thought it might be helpful to look at a couple uh, of experience of two early adopters of the FIRE movement who've become today uh, among the most popular and widely followed, followed bloggers. Uh, one is a fellow named Pete. I don't know if I'm saying his last name correctly or not, but Pete Adini. And uh, he blogs as Mr. Money Mustache. And the other fellow is Sam Dojin, who writes about his fire experiences under the moniker of the Financial Samurai. Oh, I like that title, Financial Samurai. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell us, uh, why did you pick these two? Now, first and foremost, both of these gentlemen are wonderful writers, and they bring a really unique and valuable perspective to personal finance. And aside from the fact that they were early adopters and early promoters of the FIRE movement, reading their content makes it easy to see why they've got garnered such a large following. Um, I don't always accur- or concur with the advice that they're providing, but I admire them both because they seem like real humble, down-to-earth people who are genuinely interested in helping consumers. And that's obviously exactly in the lines of what we're trying to do on the show. Um, and I also chose them actually because they actually have very different fire styles. So Pete is an example of an extreme saver who required uh, retired from his mid-level software engineering job in 2005 at age 30. And he did it with wow. relatively modest savings. And he was an extreme saver and he embraces an ultra low expense, minimalist, low carbon footprint lifestyle. And on the other side of it, for his part, Sam retired from investment banking. Um, He was with Goldman Sachs in 2012, and he retired at at age 34 with a significantly larger initial pile and an interest in not having a meager lifestyle, but in maintaining the same standard of living he had. Okay, now we're talking about two different approaches here, but tell us first about Mr. Money Mustache's job. Yeah, about his So according to his bio, he and his wife were each earning about sixty or $70,000 a year when they were working. Um, and in the years leading up to their 2005 retirement, they practiced extreme savings and extreme expense minimization. I think they were saving 50 or 75% of their income. Um, in 2005, they concluded that their $600,000 portfolio and their $200,000 mortgage-free house were sufficient to maintain them for the rest of their lives. So 
Um, their estimated living expenses at that time were just $24,000 a year, which not coincidentally is 4% of $600,000. Um, and I, what I, I believe that his blogging about his lifestyle, I think carries almost as much allure as the prospect of living, um, um, of living, um, uh, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Um, sorry. I, yeah. His, 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 I think his lifestyle is much about, um, much of the attraction is it is about um, retiring early. I think people like him just because they like that I, that romantic notion of retiring early in a tiny house and that sort of thing. It's very popular, and I, I get that. Um, what I like about Pete, though, aside from his general likability, is his devotion to low cost index fund investing. It's it's a pillar of of for growing a portfolio over time. I think most financial planners gravitate towards that too. I can totally relate. Um, the big problem with Mr. Money Mustache, however, is his continued promotion of the 4% rule. Uh, Pete will never really have to worry about the day when he wakes up to realize that the portfolio, uh, that his portfolio may expire long before he does, because on the blogging side, he generates an a- annual income of about, I think, half a million dollars a year now. So now, wow. good for him. He's, he's an entrepreneur, but the, really that we went through it, the 4% rule is really tough. And I think a lot of people may be disappointed with the results from that. Yeah. Well, it sounds like Pete is a wonderful rags to riches, successfully built program on being frugal. And also he has the entrepreneurial spirit. Now, a lot of us can easily admire him for his success, but difficult for a lot of us to replicate, JR. So can you give us your take on the financial samurai? Yeah, again, everything I've seen about it is just a really cool guy. Um, but so Sam and his wife were both in investment banking and he is freely disclosed that when they retired and stepped off the hedonic treadmill in 2012 at age 34, their net worth was around $3 million. So that alone is an effective retirement strategy for most people just accumulated $3 million, $3 million and quit. Um, and what's that old riddle? I think what's the fastest way to get a million it's to inherit it. <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I don't think financial samurai didn't, didn't, didn't inherit it, but you know the idea the idea of applying this high savings rate to a high earned income is a luxury that a lot of people simply you know can't do. Uh, that said, I chose him as an example um, because he's he's not really about living a frugal lifestyle, but rather maintaining a, a decent standard of living. And as one might expect, um, his background in finance. Um, has made his passive income portfolio more sophisticated than most people's would be. It includes mm-hmm. bonds, rental income, dividend-paying stocks, and private equity. Um, and, and I think that's a lot for a lot of people to, to handle. I don't think most people handle private equity the same way. Um, but part of the issue I have with Sam is that most consumers do not have the ability to re- replicate his model. Um, but what I really like about him is his candor. So at the end of 2009, uh, excuse me, 2019, Sam, who is, I think he's 43 years old now, um, he wrote a post explaining that his retirement early guidance had failed. And in the really? post, he, yeah. And, Interesting. and he, he explained that um, he went, went where he went wrong was that he, uh, he was getting thrown off by the high living expenses in San Francisco, that falling interest rates on his muni bond portfolio were a challenge, and that the rental market was not the same as it was. He also noted that he had a, the cost of having a child was bigger than he, missed it, than he anticipated, and the cost of healthcare, things I mentioned before. So um, in that blog, he said he was going to actually go back to work. And his job now is not investment banking. He can't really go back to that, but it is actually blogging. He's just going to, he said, I'm going to focus on that again. In a couple of years, in 2022, we plan to retire again. Um, but his, his blog income was more than a quarter of a million dollars. So, so he was, I think I was very candid in his comments that those things that we talked about, the things that can go wrong, that actually, um, you know, that actually was his story. So um, I thought it was cool that he actually there was no hubris. He, he admitted that it was a lot harder than he thought and passed that information on to his, re, his uh, followers. Now, you gave us two great cases on two totally different strategies uh, to the financial planning movement. Um, akin or, or that is the FIRE movement that we're talking about, the financial independence retire early movement. Can you pretty much wrap up for our show, put a bow on it. What is your ultimate two cents, JR, on the FIRE movement? Yeah, so sort of what I mentioned at the beginning of the show, which is I think there's a lot that people could take from it. I would I'd be caught, I, you know, I really don't mean to, to, to be overly negative on the concept. People should save more 
And I think that there's nothing wrong with, with de-emphasizing materialism in, in favor of experience, experiential living and, and a, living a, a more balanced, you know, having a more, I guess, a better work-life balance. I think that's great. I think the, the, the savings, all that's great. I think the problem is, though, that really that decision to leave a job is, is really a big one. And, and people need to be careful about that, that, um, you know, make sure you make that decision carefully because there are plenty of things to consider. And I think there are some issues in the basic fire strategy that don't necessarily work as well as they once did. And that's absolutely wonderful what you brought up about, can you just recap for those people who are just tuning in about some of the challenges when you do leave a job early? Yeah. The the biggest challenge is it's maybe if things don't go the way you plan, it may be difficult to go back what you were from what you were coming from. So um, if you've left your mid career and a few years or a decade has gone by, you're no longer employable in the same way that you were when you left and other people have moved up the ladder and just, you know, it's hard to get back into the workforce. Um, So there's that. But like I said, it's uh, the Americans don't save enough. So this is take from, if nothing else, take from that, save, save as much as you can, legally find ways to minimize your tax bill. <laughs> All these things are perfectly sound financial planning advice. I like Peter Dini was using index funds are a great low cost in, in investment in 401k plans and IRAs and that sort of thing. Lots of, there's lots of good advice. I encourage people to read the blogs. It's, I, I, I think people get a lot from reading Mr. Money Mustache and the Financial Samurai. Um, do we still have a couple of minutes left? And well, JR, uh, I wanted to inform our listeners that they've been listening to My Two Cents with financial planning expert JR Robinson. And today we've been talking about the financial independence retire early movement, also known as FIRE. I'm Jessica Lani Rich. And we are just so grateful that JR just gave us so much information in this past hour. Thanks so much for listening. And what's up next in our next show, JR? You know, honestly, I don't know. I haven't looked yet. <laughs> we have anyway, schedule. I in, haven't thought about it. <laughs> Thank you. Tune in, tune in next week with My Two Cents. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in this week to My Two Cents. Be sure to join J.R. Robinson and Jessica Lani Rich again next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until we talk again, aloha. <laughs>